Good afternoon. My name is Susan Karachi, Assistant Director of Development for Donor Relations. It's my honor to welcome you all to Calvin College and to today's January series lecture. Let us pray as we begin our program. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of a new day. Thank you for the safety and freedom we enjoy in this community. We thank you for your work through Calvin College in preparing young men and women for service in your kingdom. And we thank you above all for the hope that is in us through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask your blessings this hour as we learn about the continued witness of your church in the Middle East. This we pray in your son's name, amen. And now, Ann Zaki, Resource Specialist with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, will introduce our guests. It is my great joy and honor to introduce to you today Dr. Reverend Victor McCary, a friend, a mentor, and an example in his service and loyalty to the forgotten Christian community of the Middle East. Dr. McCary is a native of Egypt, where he first responded to God's call to full-time ministry. After graduating from the Theological Seminary in Cairo, he pursued graduate studies in theology at Princeton, Columbia, and McCormick Seminaries. Later, he further pursued postgraduate studies at Temple University, where he completed a third master's and a PhD in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. Despite his impressive academic credentials, Dr. McCary identifies himself first and foremost as a pastor. He served three PCUSA congregations in 25 years from Pennsylvania to Ohio. While in the pastorate, he was elected and served as member and president of the PCUSA Program Agency Board for 10 years. In 1990, when Dr. McCary joined the staff of the General Assembly of the PCUSA, he began as the coordinator of the Office of the Middle East and Southeast Asia, and since then has become regional liaison to the Middle East and Europe. In all these positions, he has had a significant role in ecumenical dialogue and cooperation, both domestically and internationally. God has truly equipped Dr. McCary for a unique kind of leadership, bridging the gap between the Western and the Eastern Church. The complexity of the landscape of our world today, especially that of the Middle Eastern region, requires leaders like Dr. Victor McCary. Leaders who are dedicated to issues of peace and justice in the Middle East. Leaders who appreciate and support interfaith dialogue and cooperation. And leaders who are steeped in their understanding of reconciliation through relationships of trust, dignity, and grace. Calvin College is grateful to the Calvin Academy for Lifelong Learning for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Dr. Victor McCary.
Thank you, Susan, for your prayer, and thank you, Anne, for the generous welcome and introduction. And a genuine and profound thank you to President Biker, to Ms. Potter and her staff of the January series, to the sponsors of the series, to the trustees, to the faculty, to the staff and the student body of Calvin College, and to you, good friends, distinguished guests. Thank you for coming. I am truly honored to have this privilege to reflect with you on the continuing witness and the future of the church in the Middle East. It is challenging to be speaking today on any aspect of life in the Middle East in view of the Gaza events of the past couple of weeks and the tragic events, the tragic fallout of that recent crisis. And it is especially difficult not to find oneself bewildered and perplexed by the complexity of it all. One thing we know is that the toll of human suffering, pain, anger, frustration, and long-term damage may remain beyond our capacity to calculate, let alone relieve and heal. Yet it is profoundly reassuring, for me at least, that so long as there remains in the land we call holy and in the wider region a community that lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that walks in the light of his gospel, we have the enduring hope that those Christians will carry out the ministry of reconciliation, which is also entrusted to us to share with them, even as they themselves participate in the same suffering and pain. Beyond the title of my address, there are two questions that I assume are on your minds today. First, how can we make sense of today's Middle East? And second, how can we make a difference? Now, even behind these questions, I have dared to make a few assumptions. Let me test my assumptions. I'm assuming that, except for maybe a couple of classes, if any, attendance at the January series for Calvin students is elective. I'm also assuming the majority of this audience to be people of faith. At many, if not most, are Christian, largely from the Reformed tradition. As such, many of us believe that our chief end, to use John Calvin's language, is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. I am assuming that it follows for all of us that we long for peace in our world. We long for security for ourselves and our loved ones. We long for reconciliation among traditional enemies. We long for goodwill among all peoples, including those of the Middle East. I'm assuming that among this audience, there is a great deal of personal concern 
about what is currently happening in the Middle East and to its peoples and how we might meaningfully relate to them. Or if my assumptions are not true, then why are we here? If these assumptions are true, I have determined that an entryway for our engagement is to focus on the presence and witness of the Christians of the Middle East. I intend to put forward the thesis that amidst the complexity, confusion, and conflicts, amidst the turmoil, the tensions, and even the terrors that afflict the region, the life and witness of the Christian community is a primary source of hope and courage for us if we are ever to make sense of the Middle East. Moreover, beyond making sense, to recognize that Christians are for the most part a lonely minority, we have both a responsibility and the capability in our own time and place to help them make a difference in their time and place. Why should Christian presence and the future of the church in the Middle East be important to us? There are quite a few good reasons. Primary among them is that that is where it all started. Let me cite some facts that are largely known to you. Jesus was born there. He was born in Bethlehem. My Lutheran friend, the Reverend Dr. Mitri Rahib, a Bethlehemite who pastors the Christmas Evangelical Lutheran Church in that city, tells us that when he is speaking in the United States, he is sometimes asked, as many of us Middle Eastern Christians are asked, when were you converted to Christianity? He is fond of answering that his great-great-great-great-grandmother may have babysat for Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was crucified and risen in Jerusalem. It was there that his mother Mary and the other women first witnessed his resurrection. Then they went and told the disciples. Followers of Jesus were mostly Jews who began to look at the world differently because of what they had seen and heard from him. The Christian church was born in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost. There were Jewish residents of Jerusalem and natives of other lands. There were Arabs, there were Persians, there were Berbers, there were Greeks and others. Today, though their numbers are dwindling alarmingly, there are some 12 to 14 million native Middle Eastern Christians still living in that region. Those who call themselves Christians of the Middle East live in Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Bahrain, 
Oman, Qatar, Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya, as well as in Turkey and Armenia, if we count Armenia among the Middle Eastern cultures. The Christian community has maintained an unbroken presence and witness in most of those lands since the day of Pentecost. That means that a child who is baptized today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit has a continuous, uninterrupted heritage and nurture by generations of Christians. One can say that each of those children, when they are baptized, is a 2,000-year-old child. After his conversion, the Apostle Paul spent three years in Arabia, beginning at the house of Ananias in Damascus. It is plausible, therefore, to assume that his sojourn there was a significant time of discernment, a time that contributed to the consolidation of his experience and his call to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of his known world. It must have opened up his vision of an inclusive realm beyond his own ethnic identity that propelled him into his apostolic and missionary career to the Gentiles. At one time, despite successive foreign occupations, certain of the countries of the Middle East could claim a population of significant majorities of Christians. With the rise and spread of Islam in the seventh century, and over a period of hundreds of years, Christians became minorities in the land, in the lands of their ancestors. It is reasonable to recognize that one of the strongest factors contributing to the rise of Islam was the proliferation of Christian heresies and the confusion among the masses of Christians and pagans arising from doctrinal debates concerning the Trinity, Christology, Soteriology, and the need on another level for a religion that explained God and the world in simpler terms than Christian theology, a religion that patterned human living around commandments and prohibitions, and that spoke more directly to the worth of, of human works in terms of reward and punishment. Islam was a forthright, straightforward religion, a religion of faith in the one and only God, worshiping God, serving neighbor, and its merit was all on the basis of reward and punishment. Yet, despite historical doctrinal debates among Christian circles, there exists today a profound body of Arabic, Christian, biblical, and theological literature that largely lies buried in the recesses of time and in the caverns of desert monasteries. Such a source remains untapped 
since Augustine and Chrysostom and the Byzantine fathers, the church and the Western scholars in particular have insisted on Greek and Latin to be the languages and sources of theological discourse. Let me give you an illustration. When Dr. Atif Gindi, who is now president of the Evangelical Theological Seminary in Cairo, was studying for his doctorate in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he petitioned the faculty to do his research on the works of a Coptic Arab scholar from the medieval period, Hibatullah ibn al-Assal. That scholar created a critical edition of the four Gospels with a full apparatus demonstrating how the text was translated from Greek, Coptic, and Syriac into Arabic over the centuries before his day. It was a thorough apparatus of textual criticism. Gindi's proposal was, quote, regretfully rejected. The reason? No one on the faculty of that prestigious university could supervise his Arabic research. Will there come a time when the wealth of such theological heritage, written in the Arabic and other Oriental languages, see the light of day? Today, even though Islam comprises the overwhelming majority of Middle Eastern populations, and here I remind us that contrary to all manner of, of profiling, not all Middle Easterners are Arabs, not all Arabs are Muslims, and not all Muslims are Arabs or Middle Eastern. Islam may not be viewed as a monolith. We already know that the Christian church itself is not a monolith. There is finally a symbiosis among the peoples and the faith communities of the Middle East that could be turned into a creative source of energy for good. These are some of the facts, the realities, that impel us to contemplate connecting to the Christians of the Middle East and knowing more about their continuing witness and caring about the future of the church there. So in light of all of, of the above, there are two realities to remember. The first is that throughout the long continuing uninterrupted history of Christian presence and witness, Christians on the one hand shared fully the lot of their non-Christian neighbors, whether in circumstances of natural disaster, war, occupation, exile, or economic distress, and on the other hand, their own relationship with Muslims, Jews, and others have often been strained and sometimes marked by varying degrees of alienation. As a minority in societies that have been ruled, in many cases by reg repressive regimes, they have experienced discrimination, underrepresentation, 
marginalization, suspicion, harassment, ridicule, surveillance, and frequent hostility or outright persecution. They shared the lot of their neighbors, yet they were a lonely minority. The second fact is that despite all the hardship Christians of the Middle East have encountered, whether in the company of their neighbors or in their lonely isolation, Christians have held fast to their identity in Christ and have been constant in their embrace of the claims and promises of the scriptures, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They have most generally responded with an attitude of loving their neighbor and loving their enemy. No matter what, no matter what the price, they have seen themselves ultimately as peacemakers and reconcilers. A major and essential part of my work as our church's area coordinator for the Middle East is to visit with the leaders of our partner churches in different countries of the region. Infrequently, I have traveled to Lebanon. There, I heard an evangelical leader in Beirut quite often as well as others like him in other parts of the Middle East, say, however peace negotiations between Israel and the Arabs may flounder, someday, hopefully in our time, peace will come. Some form of peace, a negotiated settlement, a treaty will be signed on paper. That is realistic to anticipate. As Christians, though, this Lebanese evangelical leader has said, we do not look for peace on paper. So for a real peace, we must start now to work for reconciliation. This is the driving force in the presence, existence, and witness of the Christian communities in the Middle East, despite all the pressures and stresses under which they may find themselves. I believe that commitment to reconciliation sums up a good many of the practical engagement of Christians of the Middle East with their neighbors on many fronts and in different countries of the region. There is major work of reconciliation being done and more to be done between Palestinians and Israelis, but also between Christians and Muslims, between Christians and Christians, and even now between Muslims and Muslims. Ironically, Christians are sometimes called upon to mediate between Muslims and Muslims. There is major work of reconciliation to be done between Christians and Jews in the Middle East, in Europe, and in our own nation, in our own cities and towns, here in the United States. And there is major, major work of understanding and reconciliation 
to be done between Christians and Muslims in our own nation, our own cities, our towns, our neighborhoods. The church, whether in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, or the Americans, the Americas, can only hope to have a future if it is engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. I wish to cite a few illustrations of practical ways of how Christians are making sense in the Middle East, how they are going about the work of reconciliation. They perceive reconciliation to begin with as understanding, to begin with as humility before the other, and as interest in the well-being of the other. In Egypt, for example, the Coptic Evangelical Organization for Social Services, known to some of us by its acronym as SEOS, is an indigenous development organization created a half a century ago within the Egyptian Presbyterian Church. It has an entirely Christian staff of about 200 committed professionals and serves at any moment two million of Egypt's poor and marginalized, both Muslim and Christian. Indeed, it could be said that the major part of the work of SIAS is among Muslims. Its work of economic assistance, training for self-reliance, capacity building and advocacy is largely in partnership with Egypt's rural population and inner city squatter communities as it seeks to address root causes of poverty and hunger. Its leadership has been engaged for more than 20 years now with Muslim leaders through a forum for interreligious dialogue. Together with their Muslim counterparts from various professional disciplines and different social strata, Christians tackle difficult questions of living side by side. The difficulties of human rights, of women's rights, of religious liberties, discrimination in education and employment, child labor laws, drug and substance abuse, and other social justice issues. Despite their relatively small number, the evangelicals, as they are called, are credited with much work in the area of education, health, and reform. Through those channels, they stretch bridges of understanding and cooperation with their Muslim neighbors. In Jerusalem and the West Bank, heads of the Palestinian Christian communions take every possible opportunity, capitalizing particularly on the occasions of the Christian calendar, Advent, Christmas, Lent, Good Friday, Easter, and Pentecost, to make their public witness to peace. They, through their statements, they communicate their commitment to reconciliation. They reaffirm the resurrection faith and the reality of the Christian hope. Individually, they proactively seek to build bridges with both their Muslim and Jewish neighbors. For example, the Right Reverend Munib Yunan, Bishop of one of our partner churches, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Jordan and the Holy Land, 
has formed dialogue groups made up of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Right in the midst of conflict, they gather to discuss and to address how they can reach out with the peacemaking branch to alienated communities. Canon Naim Atik and the Sabil Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center in Jerusalem, which he heads, contributes significantly to interfaith dialogue and cooperation. The International Center of Bethlehem, under the direction of the Reverend Dr. Mitri Raheb, I mentioned his name earlier, of the Lutheran Evangelical Lutheran Church, offers programs sparking hope in the hearts and minds of Palestinian youth. One who sees it can never forget the photo of a boy aged seven or eight hurling stones at the Israeli soldiers. One who might well have been on track to become an adult terrorist. That photo is shown side by side of another photo of the same person, the same boy, now a young man of age 23. He is now tuxedoed, holding his concert violin. He is living in London while studying and performing, but comes back each year to teach other children how to develop their own talents. From a stone thrower to a concert violinist teaching other children ways of nonviolence. Christians inspire hope. In Gaza, in the midst of a place as resembling hell as could be found on earth today, the Ahli Arab Hospital, operated by the Episcopal Church of Jerusalem and the Middle East, and directed by a marvelous Christian woman by the name of Suhaila Habash, offers health and healing and comfort to the wounded and to the sick. In Jerusalem, Jericho, and Beit Sahur, Christians at the YMCA and the YWCA provide vocational training to hundreds of young men and women, mostly Muslim, in many locations, to make something worthwhile of their lives and thus to hold on to hope for peace. On a more formal level, in Beirut, Lebanon, and with the goal of region-wide change of attitudes and relations, the Reverend Riyad Jarjour now serves a team of committed and well-positioned Muslim and Christian leaders. It is called the Arab Group on Christian-Muslim Relations, and it has the far-reaching but not unrealistic objective of transforming social and religious systems that have thriven on mutual demonization and suspicion. The group is seeking and keeping as a goal its hopes to be able to achieve the inclusion of Jewish participants as well. Women serving in leadership of significant institutions and organizations tells us that Christians are swimming against the currents of many fronts in their cultures and societies where things don't change rapidly. 
Dr. Mary Mechail, Mary, I said, president of the Near East School of Theology, a prestigious theological institution in the region, serves the churches of the Middle East by developing leaders, pastor, pastors, researchers, and community leaders who serve their denominations. Now, with all of this about the future and the hope of the continuity of Christian witness, so long as they continue to be engaged in the work of reconciliation, how can we, how can we make a difference in the Middle East? Now, with considerable urgency and personal passion, I offer some suggestions by way of an invitation to action by all of us. First, I invite you to connect, reconnect, or intensify your connection with the Christians of the Middle East. They need to know that they are not alone and that they are not alone in their longing or their struggle for peace and justice. They need us to accompany them. We need them to open our eyes to the realities they live and experience every day. Why should we be concerned? First, because they live, move, and have their being in direct continuity with the earliest Christian believers the first witnesses of the risen Christ. Second, because of our indivisible unity with the Holy Catholic Church, where if one part of the body suffers, all suffer. Where one part of the body experiences joy, we all rejoice. Third, because many of us, of the Reformed family in particular, have a deep history of involvement in the Middle East and an intimate relationship with its people. Evangelical, reformed, Protestant denominations of this country have had a pioneering role in sending missionaries to the Middle East. And the person speaking to you and the two women who were at the podium before me are products of that mission work. We have good reason to return to you the favor by engaging you in our common journey of witness, of peacemaking, of working for justice. One other reason why we should be engaged is that peace in the Middle East is not an option. It is needed not only for the people who live there, but for the peace of the world. And if we are not engaged in it, we too pay a price. A good place for those who may be looking for a place to begin would be to get to know some of the Middle Easterners who may be members of our own churches or who live in our communities. 
Our governing bodies often call upon us to be in solidarity with the Christians and others in the Middle East, to pray for them, to walk the journey of faith with them, and to experience their pain as well as their joy. There is nothing more important or more effective than our staying constantly in prayer with them. Another thing we can do is to visit the Christians of the Middle East. There is so much talk about safety and security. I can assure you, as one who goes frequently and quite, quite often, it is safe to be there. And you are encouraged to go to Jerusalem, to go to Beirut, to go to Cairo, to go to other places of the region and feel quite safe. Jesus has reminded us that in moments of isolation, those who are alone and lonely need the company of those who can come and visit. Our own church has urged our constituency to make visits to the region and to stand in solidarity with those who live there to let them know that they are not alone. There is more we can do to join in the work of reconciliation, a whole lot more even here at home. One of the most urgent things we can do together with Middle Eastern Christians who live among us here is to work energetically to resist anti-Semitism. Yes, to resist anti-Semitism because still so much of it exists as an attitude, as a way of treating our Jewish neighbor. If we work together with Christians from the Middle East who are committed to reconciliation, we must work on that front of resisting anti-Semitism. We need to work with other Christians and with people of other faiths, with Muslims, with Jews, to achieve peace and justice together in the Middle East. We live in times when all of us are needed, all of us are needed, to commit and to work in our own ways and together with others for reconciliation, for justice and peace on many fronts. If we put our minds, hearts and hands together, we can truly be instruments of God's peace and grace in our world. We can support the weak, we can contribute to impacting the thinking of politicians, we can promote, facilitate and advance conversations even between perceived enemies. We can allow ourselves and help others to think outside our familiar boxes that entomb us into hopelessness and despair. I believe in partnership with our Christian brothers and sisters of the Middle East who have held high with courage the banner of the Prince of Peace and with other people of faith and of goodwill. I believe that we can join God's unrelenting movement in human history to bestow shalom, salam, peace on the human family 
undone all of God's creation. This is one of the ways in which we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To God be the glory. Amen. We now have time for a few questions. I encourage you to use the microphones that are on the sides, and I also encourage you to please be succinct for the sake of our time. Dr. McCary, thank you, McCary, thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. A lot of us who uh, read about events in the Middle East, such as the trouble in Gaza right now, don't know whom to believe. What English language news resources should we trust? Um, I qu quote a scripture that um, uh, for the making of books, and shall we add uh, news resources, newspapers, websites, etc., there is no end. But there are some uh, useful uh, news resources. Um, I find, as one that is uh, uh, available worldwide, uh, and uh, they do their homework, uh, British Broadcast Corporation, BBC, uh, to have more in-depth analyses of uh, the situation. Uh, and they invite... Uh, uh, guests to serve on panels uh, to discuss issues with some knowledge of the situation. Uh, they are impartial in, uh, in their presentation of, uh, of uh, facts on the ground. That's only one possibility. I invite you also to look at the English edition of the uh, uh, Israeli newspaper Haaretz uh, that is often a source of, uh, of uh, information for me and a source of uh, uh, understanding the situation given uh, the perspectives that are offered there. Uh, the Jerusalem Post uh, has an English edition also. Uh, it is an Israeli newspaper. And between the Post and Haaretz, uh, I think you will find uh, differing perspectives, but then that uh, could help uh, a reader achieve a, uh, at least a, a rounded picture of, uh, of what to discern. Uh, I find personally that our most helpful source of, uh, of information, and that may not be available to everyone here, uh, but in some instances there are websites that help, I find that our Christian partners are uh, an important uh, and reliable source to know what is going on. But in our own press, too, there have been uh, useful analyses of the current events on the ground uh, without trying to promote one side or the other. Uh, they give facts that speak for themselves uh, about, uh, about uh, 
how uh, a conflict flares up and how violence uh, may be initiated. Of course, we really need to know that, uh, that there is a well-organized and well-orchestrated uh, uh, activity to have the public understand uh, the present conflict in a particular way. And uh, that is uh, uh, sometimes uh, a superficialization of the situation. And in some instances, it's an insult to the intelligence of, uh, of the American audience. Um, one has to ask the question, for example, of uh, the timing of this crisis and uh, how it was so uh, uh, implemented in, in such a way that uh, at least the world's attention was focused uh, on uh, the celebrations of Christmas and the New Year and holiday, the change in administration in the U.S., uh, upcoming events in Israel itself with election. So one has to take all of those factors together. And I find particularly that uh, there are many courageous Israeli writers who are uh, bold enough to raise questions about context more than the actual uh, uh, factual information of how many died today, how many were injured, etc. So uh, I think uh, I think references to such major news organs, uh, websites of uh, the churches, uh, the Episcopal Church of Jerusalem in the Middle East, is a small denomination there, but it is a a, a, a veritable presence. Uh, the uh, Lutheran uh, Church, the Evangelical Church of Jordan and the Holy Land, the International uh, Center of Bethlehem, as I mentioned, they all have good and helpful websites. Uh, and they can give not only uh, reference to the, the facts of daily events, but how they see the situation and invitations to how we can participate to respond. Clarify the uh, Presbyterian Church's position on uh, expunging or removing uh, investments from companies that do business with Israel. In 2004, uh, there was uh, a resolution in our terminology, we call some of those resolutions an overture that came from uh, the grassroots. Uh, one of the uh, presbyteries, uh, regional uh, entities of the church in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, uh, asking the General Assembly to consider uh, several recommendations dealing with uh, embracing the, the uh, Geneva Accords, uh, and uh, ways to, to peacemaking and achieving the two-state solution. And the seventh recommendation of that uh, overture that came to the General Assembly in 2004 uh, proposed uh, divestment uh, of companies that benefit from the occupation. Uh, the Assembly considered uh, that, uh, that 
proposal and took a very careful uh, action at that time, uh, adopting a, a, a process whereby uh, divestment would be a selective process with particular companies uh, based on criteria that the church has for its investment uh, uh, procedures uh, and a phased process where, uh, first of all, you enter into dialogue with the companies about uh, corporate behavior and uh, the ethical questions that arise from that. And, uh, of course, given Presbyterian process, the final act of divestment could not be implemented uh, without coming back to the General Assembly and getting approval for that to happen. Uh, at that time, the media picked up uh, the action uh, without going into those uh, process details of the church and, uh, and announced that, uh, that Presbyterians are boycotting and divesting and calling for sanctions against Israel. Uh, rather than against specific companies that benefit from the occupation, etc. Anyway, there was a huge reaction within the Presbyterian Church and uh, from the larger community, particularly uh, uh, certain Jewish organizations, uh, American Jewish organizations, uh, that, uh, that brought back to the assembly in 2006, which was the next subsequent assembly, a more modulated language for that uh, process and proposed uh, a process that would engage in selective positive investment while negotiations with companies that are benefiting from the occupation would continue on track in the same way that for 30 years we have approached the question of church investments. Uh, Again, uh, media picked up the action of the 2006 assembly, describing it as a recension of the earlier action. Uh, and uh, certainly that uh, was not the case. In 2008, which was the next subsequent assembly, uh, the assembly took a series of actions, uh, different facets of relating to the Middle East and uh, Christians there and the occupation and our uh, Jewish neighbors, etc., that affirmed uh, its historical stance vis-a-vis -vis the occupation and uh, the need for peacemaking and for uh, justice in the region uh, and reaffirmed its action to continue the dialogue and the process with uh, with companies benefit for benefiting from the occupation, uh, but uh, it, it just used language that, uh, that was uh, more clearly not the kind of language that somebody could pick up and say Presbyterians are divesting or reneging on the question of, uh, of uh, the investment questions. So that's where we stand now, and uh, we continue to be in dialogue with uh, our counterparts on these issues uh, uh, regarding the issue of divestment. This question is from a viewer at the remote webcast site in Troy, Michigan. Please tell us how the Genetian Fund began and its current programs. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, 
a viewer has uh, obviously picked up on the second half of my title and that not only do I serve as coordinator for the Middle East, but as coordinator for a relief and development program uh, that is an endowed program uh, entrusted in the hands of the Presbyterian Church USA uh, to serve Armenians in need in other parts of the world. Uh, there was a man by the name of, uh, of Vartan Janishian who uh, had no heirs, who left his wealth at that time in 1966 uh, for the benefit of, uh, of needy and impoverished Armenians. Uh, and he stipulated in his will that uh, the Presbyterian Church USA will administer this uh, program and uh, will uh, not exercise it either in the United States, because needy Armenians in the United States can find opportunity, nor in the Soviet Union, because in the then Soviet uh, uh, structure, uh, people were guaranteed jobs and, uh, and uh, social services, etc. So the program has now continued for more than 40 years to serve uh, in the areas of economic development with a component of spiritual uplift for uh, Armenian communities in need. So that's how it started uh, with uh, the performance of the market over the years. The fund had grown, but also the cost of operating the fund, uh, the operating the program has uh, increased, and we are now at the point of having to do some fundraising. So if, uh, if there are uh, any who are interested in supporting the Armenians in need, we would welcome uh, their contributions. Thank you. speaking for the, uh, the forgotten church in the Middle East and, and the power of, of, of Jesus' name. Could you share with us your perspective on the persecuted church in the Middle East today? And also, as we talk about reconciliation, does that conflict with what we see in so many Middle Eastern countries, uh, the prohibition on, on conversion and proselytizing? Thank you. Uh, I honor the question. It's an important one. Um, in the first place, I want to be sure that, uh, that I do not use the word persecution as a blanket way to describe uh, pressures under which religious minorities, uh, and in our case, the, the Christians, experience in the Middle East. Because really, in most of the countries of the Middle East, uh, there is at least constitutional guarantee of, uh, of freedom of religion. Uh, the implementation of that has, uh, from time to time and at different times, uh, been, uh, been compromised, uh, either systematically by uh, governmental regimes or by uh, people who work for the government and therefore have a uh, a sense of authority and power to to act out their personal convictions and uh, hostilities and so forth. Uh, there, there is, there has been, uh, and there continues to be in uh, in a number of places in the Middle East, institutional discrimination against Christians. Uh, part of that is the. Uh, heritage of political regimes of occupation such as the Ottoman Empire and the 
uh, the Dhimmi understanding that means the rights, protected rights of religious minorities. Uh, their freedom is granted so long as uh, their exercise of their faith is uh, geographically confined within the buildings of their institutions, whether they're churches or schools, etc. Uh, and because in the largely Muslim countries, there is as part of Islamic doctrine that reneging on Islam as one's faith is, uh, is, a, uh, is apostasy uh, and is therefore blasphemy against God. The idea of a Muslim to become a Christian is punishable by law according to Islamic Sharia because of that of that religious doctrine itself. And therefore, the authorities, the government in authority, that is in most places a Muslim government, is bound to apply that. Now there are, in different places, uh, a way for uh, the authorities to give an opportunity to the per person who wants to convert to uh, explain reasons and so forth. Uh, but, but the practice is still continued. There are other ways of uh, discrimination that uh, involve uh, discrimination in employment or in educational opportunities or uh, uh, economic uh, possibilities and so forth. So these are all different uh, ways and different degrees of uh, persecution, if you will. Uh, but, but essentially, I think the whole phenomenon of the rise of fundamentalism, and I don't speak only of Islamic fundamentalism because fundamentalism is on the rise in many places in various religious communities, including in India as well, for example. Uh, uh, the pressure is increased, and when power is vested in, in uh, official uh, persons of authority, uh, then they take it upon themselves to to project their own convictions as they relate to uh, cases of, uh, of discrimination. Uh, by and large, I think we need to say that uh, there are now growing efforts also to counterpart those restrictions on religious freedom and uh, to at least make the questions and to bring the debate into the public arena uh, so that, uh, so that uh, enlightened populations can begin to to uh, ask themselves why is this and how can we what can we do to change it? Thanks. Hello, um, I'm curious. You spoke very plainly about the need for our solidarity with the Christians in the Middle East. Yes, sir. And then you spoke very carefully and tenuously about the Presbyterian position. Uh, as its approach to Israel and the occupation of Palestine. I'm wondering what the Palestinian Christians believe as a proper approach to Israeli policy and the occupation of Palestine, particularly you mentioned Dr. Naim Atik of Sabil. If it's as careful or attenuated as you know, we're proposing the Presbyterians. Uh, sorry. The Presbyterian Church is uh, very clear about uh, about the uh, uh, 
the urgency of ending the Israeli occupation. Uh, the position of the Presbyterian Church has been from the beginning, from that is to say from 1948 onward, is that there uh, need, need to be uh, two states side by side uh, with respect to, uh, to Israel's right to exist within secure and legitimate borders, but also a sovereign Palestinian state uh, that is, uh, or at least in the earlier language, uh, the language of self-determination by the Palestinians, including the right to have their own sovereign state within secure and legitimate borders. There has uh, been no wavering uh, on, on that position by the Presbyterian Church USA. The tenuousness may have come uh, in the context of talking about divestment spe specifically and how, how that uh, has played out in order to be sure that uh, we are not perceived as anti-Semitic and uh, that we intend as a church to inflict another uh, Holocaust, an economic one, on the, on the, on the Israeli or Jewish people. Uh, insofar as relationship to the Reverend Dr. Naim Atik of uh, the Sabil Center, he is one of our partners, his institution is. We continue to relate to him. We uh, do not simply copy the language that any of our partners use, but we lift them up and put them forward. Um, there are, uh, it is no secret that uh, Naim Atik personally is often attacked by, by organizations that want to demonize him and, and uh, what he is saying. But on a number of instances, we have pointed out that, uh, that he was misquoted by his adversaries uh, and uh, that he stands for justice and for peacemaking and for nonviolence. So there is no, no wavering as far as I am aware, uh, unless I misunderstood your question. Give him a second. Our time is up. Thank you very much for, to all of you for being here. Dr. Victor McCary will be at the West Lobby for greeting. And will you please join me one last time in thanking him for being here. I would be happy to engage in the question further if you'd like.